0: Hi, this is John Heminghouse speaking for the Beacon of Hope Broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Mollingville, Pennsylvania. Do you think that you are on your way to heaven? Could you be wrong about that? The differences between heaven and hell are so serious that no one in his right mind would want to be convinced he is headed toward heaven and yet end up in hell. In Jesus' message that Pastor Jones will examine today, that is exactly what our Lord feared for many he was addressing. In fact, just before Christ spoke the words of his sermon, he opened the eyes of a blind man, yet immediately after that wonderful miracle, Jesus encountered people determined to reject him as their savior and lord. These religious leaders were spiritually blind. Today as we study Matthew 12:22 through 50, you will see that spiritual blindness is much more difficult to heal than physical blindness. Why? Because the physically blind understand their need and want to be healed by Jesus, whereas the spiritually blinded person denies his need for salvation through Christ and thus refuses to submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord. I hope you will listen to this message that Jesus himself preached that our pastor has entitled, Trying to Open the Eyes of the Spiritually Blind.
1: We come today to the fifth of the messages that Jesus preached during his public ministry. You may recall that the first one he preached was to his hometown in Nazareth. And um, humanly speaking, that didn't go too well. The people of his hometown got so angry with him for what he said that they tried to actually throw him off the cliff there in Nazareth. And uh, God uh, protected his son. Um, but that was an interesting response to This first recorded sermon shows you that Jesus was not about just telling people what they wanted to hear. Now, the second recorded sermon was in John chapter 5, when Jesus talked about his equality with God the Father. And, of course, that would have been extremely controversial as well. The third sermon, and probably the most famous of all the sermons that Jesus preached, was what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and that took place in front of a large audience of his followers. Of course, not all of them were loyal followers, but many were. And um, that took place um, and covers Matthew chapter 5 through 7, as well as other spots in the Gospels that deal with Jesus' words on that occasion. The fourth sermon that we looked at, um, uh, let's see, it be about maybe a week ago on the radio, was his message that he is the Messiah, and in that particular message, he closed with those great words, Come unto me, all you who labor, and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And went on from there, and we are, uh, know that that sermon must have been a blessing to many as well. Now we come to his fifth sermon today, and this one deals with his attempt to open the eyes of some spiritually blinded people who were listening to him. It's, it's set in a context where he had just done a miracle, And yet um, there were people that were actually uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit as a result of their determined rejection of this uh, miracle. And so we're going to look at that today. Uh, Before I get started, I do want to go back to a, a previous passage in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23 that kind of expresses the same basic warning that Christ will give in this message. And that is the warning against those who would be confident that they're on their way to heaven when in fact they are not. And this is what he said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, i never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness and the word that's really stuck out to me uh just uh, when i was going through this series is the word many many will say to me in that day uh, lord we've done all these wonderful things how come we're not considered your children and i would just um Strongly urge you to listen to this particular message now as we come to Matthew chapter 12 as Jesus takes up a similar theme while he's trying to open the eyes of spiritually blinded people. Before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon this time. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. I pray that you would bless uh, the, the word to our hearts. Help us as we hear the words of our Savior and think and ponder them. that We might um, uh, take them uh, to heart. Accomplish what you want, Father, in each heart that will uh that will listen today we pray in Jesus name amen now uh this statement that uh that many will say to me in that day we you know we can't believe that we're not uh, uh considered one of your followers uh really is a haunting thing, and so uh, let me just back up then in Matthew chapter twelve at verse twenty two and you'll understand then we'll get the the brief context before. This next message of Jesus then was brought to him, to Jesus, uh, uh, him who was a demon possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spake and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now, when they're asking, could he be the son of David? What they mean by that is, could he be the Messiah? The, The Messiah was prophesied to be the son of David. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, the Pharisees are religious leaders of the day. They said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And this would be what Jesus was, would, would warn them about, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They're actually taking all kinds of evidence that the Lord has been giving them of the, the reality of his claims. That he is, in fact, the Son of God, the promised Savior of the world and he's backing it up with miracle after miracle after miracle, and now some of the religious leaders have basically said, we're going to reject everything that you do, and we're going to ascribe it to Satan. They're not denying that he was doing the miracles. They're not denying his claims that he was the son of God. They're not saying he's not claiming that. They're what they're basically saying is, we are determined, we're not going to accept you as our Lord and Savior. We're not going to do it. We're not going to acknowledge you as the Savior of the world, the Messiah. We're not going to do it. Now, when they were saying this in the crowd, verse 25 says, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided itself against itself will not stand. So it seems that these men, when they said he is casting out devils by Beelzebub, it seems that they were not saying this loud enough that they thought Jesus could hear them. But Jesus read their minds. He understood what they were thinking. And so he answers their question uh, or their accusation without them even formally uh, assaulting him with it. They were talking to people in the crowd. They weren't wanting Jesus to hear it. And he says, If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. We'll stop there for just a second. And uh, Jesus is going to uh, set up several different ways that one could uh, check to uh, to to see if he is truly a follower of Jesus. To actually, as as um, almost as stepping stones, to see who he is. And the first thing that he is going to appeal to is reasoning. And his argument is is pretty simple, and that is: Would Satan cast out himself? Now, this, he says if, if Satan casts out Satan, then his kingdom is divided against itself and it will never stand. Now, it's interesting that our president, Abraham Lincoln, um, 16th president of the United States, uh, before the Civil War, this is one of the things that he had, had stated publicly, and that is a house divided against itself cannot stand. And, of course, his point was that you cannot live in a country that is half slave and half free. And he was right on that that we had to resolve that issue. And thank the Lord, um, we outlawed slavery as a result of a bloody civil war. But uh, be that as it may, what Christ is doing here is appealing to their reason. And that is, Satan would not cast out himself. It would mean that he was divided against himself. Now, he also appealed to something else in their reason, and that is, hey, they had, uh, he calls them sons, either relatives of theirs or followers of theirs, who also claim to cast out demons. And so his point is, if I'm casting out demons by Satan, then how do you know what the power is behind those that you know and acknowledge are casting out uh, de- uh, demons with? How do you know their power? Is it coming from Satan himself? Thus Jesus is saying that using Satan to cast out his own demons opened the door for the possibility of their own followers to be doing the same. You see, uh, logic uh, uh, many times can be twisted, can it, unfortunately? Um, There was a uh, uh, thing I came across, an article I came across, safety facts, and of course this is in quotes, from the New York uh, Miners Institute. Um, Fact number one, nearly all sick people have eaten carrots. Obviously, they say, the effects are cumulative. An estimated 99% of all people who die from cancer and heart disease have eaten carrots. 99.9% of people involved in car crashes ate carrots within 60 days of their accidents. 93.1% of juvenile delinquents came up from homes where carrots are served regularly. And their final statement, among people born in 1839 who later ate carrots, there has been a 100% mortality rate. Now, of course, uh, uh, this was a joke, and I'm sure many of their statistics were made up anyway, but the point that, that they're making is that you can try to take statistics and, and make them set up say, something like, you know, carrots are bad for you, which no one would believe except maybe a child who's trying to get out from under eating them at the supper table. But the reality is, is that Jesus is giving them some solid logic to think about. Why would Satan cast out Satan? And if you're going to try to use that argument against me, that argument can also be used against your own followers. Now, if Jesus, in fact, then, was using God's power to cast out demons, which is the natural uh, logical result of this, then they are led to three conclusions, which uh, they didn't want to accept, but they needed to, to face. And again, this is the argument from reason. And the first one is found in verse 28. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is, if Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah and he's backing it up with works that God has given him the power to do, then in fact, it is showing he is the promised Messiah. Um, He made a second uh, 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 conclusion. And that is that Jesus had overpowered Satan and his forces. If he's casting out demons by the Spirit of God, he obviously had more power than Satan does. And that's what he says next. He says, well, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? So Jesus is showing his power over Satan. And then the the third logical conclusion is to refuse to submit to the promised Messiah is in fact. To be his enemy. What he means by that is these men who, well, we we need more evidence. We we're not convinced. This is not good enough. What they're really really doing is they're finding excuses to stay on the side against him, on trying to keep people from accepting him. And so here's what he said He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So he made an appeal to Logic. He made an appeal for them to think and to and and to reason through uh, his claims to be Messiah. Now, uh, it's interesting. Isaiah one eighteen, God says a a similar thing in the prophet's Isaiah uh, Isaiah's writings. He says, "Come now and let us reason together," says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God. Does want you to reason and to think about, about Him, about the truth of God, about the claims of Christ. So, uh, what, what's interesting though is the person that wants to remain Christ's enemy, he will, uh, he will direct his mind uh, so often toward thinking uh, thoughts that, that are not reasonable, but in, in his mind make sense. Uh, I'll give you some examples. An unsaved person often will think that he is more righteous than God is. And he or she will flatter himself or herself to have more compassion than God does. Uh, Many theologians even today are denying the doctrine of of hell. And what they're saying is, well, a, a, a good and loving God would never throw anyone into hell. What's fascinating about that is if they read the very words of Christ, he talked. About the place called hell, more than anyone else did. It wasn't because he wasn't compassionate. He laid down his life for us. It wasn't because he was merely trying to scare people. It was because he knew the reality of that of that place and did not want people to go there. But people today, even even theologians today, many of them think they are more righteous with, than God. They think they have more compassion than God does. They think they know how to how to define marriage better than God did. In Matthew 19, Jesus defined marriage as between a man and a woman. Matter of fact, he said God made them male and female. Jesus uh, has a and, and the Lord has defined what marriage is. We're not more righteous than God is to define it differently. His standards of purity, uh, of sex uh, uh, only within the bonds of marriage, is still uh, the truth. And it doesn't matter how many people want to violate that doesn't matter how many people think they have a better plan than God does. They don't. Do you think you're more uh, intelligent than God, wiser than God? Uh, God's Word talks about a lot of things that people tend to, to disagree with and think that they know better. God's standards of honesty in business, God's standards of forgiveness toward others, that we are to forgive and we are to, to uh, be willing to to uh, to to restore relationships, many people say, "Well, that's now how it works in the real world." Really, so you're wiser than God on that. Uh, God is is uh, uh, his his uh, standards on on um, right and wrong. His his account of how he created the world. People think, "Oh, well, science has figured out that that we've actually uh, the world was not created the way that that the Bible describes." Really. Um. Uh, I love science. I've studied science. Uh, I will just tell you that uh, as a teacher back um, be about 20, almost 30 years ago now, teaching in science class in a private Christian school where I was allowed to do so, I was bringing in uh, tapes on evolution to my science class and letting my students analyze them. Because the reality was they were not logical. They were not factual. Matter of fact, one of the one of the frustrations I had as a teacher at that time was to find some of the some 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 of the tapes that were dealing with the subject of evolution that actually gave me something to to reason with the students. So much of it was fluff. It was amazing to me. Um, it's it's it really is not that man is now smarter than God is. It's not that. It is not that man created God as some have tried to say. No, God created man. You're not more righteous. You're not wiser than God is. And when you think that, you're just like the crowd that Jesus was trying to open their eyes on the the day that this sermon was being preached. Uh, I know it's possible for we who are Christians even in our deceptive hearts to, to vainly imagine that somehow we are smarter or more righteous or more compassionate than God is. But I would submit to you that the critical difference between a believer and unbeliever Comes when when we're when we're confronted with the reality. You know, you're thinking you're smarter than God. The believer says, "Oh, yeah, that's not true." The unbeliever um, he somehow somehow convinces himself that his thoughts are wiser than God's thoughts, and how foolish that is. So Jesus, first of all, appeals to reason. Is Satan casting out Satan here? If not, then my claims to be the Messiah are being substantiated, and you need to submit to me. The next appeal is to uh, check your your speech. The idea is this, what's coming out of your mouth? And just as these people, now they again evidently didn't want Jesus to hear what they were saying, but they're whispering in the crowd, oh, he's casting out demons through the prince of the demons. Uh, God is going to judge every one of us for every word that's coming out of our mouth. And so notice how Jesus deals with this. He says, starting with verse 31 of Matthew 12, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word about the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now this is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin. And I dealt with that at length uh, last week in our uh, radio message. If you wanted to hear that and didn't get a chance to hear that, you'd find that on um, our podcast uh, for this radio station. So I won't go into that, but you will notice that he is telling us that all kinds of blasphemy will be forgiven by God. And if you are concerned that you have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if you truly still want to be saved, you haven't. You can just guarantee that. Because the person that has committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is like these people, and that is, I am not submitting to God. I don't care what He does. I I and, and they and they don't feel conviction any longer. God just basically leaves them alone. So if you still have a desire, you haven't committed that sin, and you'd be thankful for that. Now, um, but you'll notice it's connected with what's coming out of your mouth. So blasphemy. Uh, is is thank God most uh, and almost every blasphemy is forgiven this one specific sin is so serious it 'll never be forgiven Now he goes on, and he tells us that our speech our what comes out of our mouths reveals our hearts verse thirty three either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit, brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak good things? Boy, you see his boldness here. To actually tell people in his audience, you're a bunch of snakes. Now, he's not saying that to all of them, but those who are behaving that way, I think they figured out who he was talking about. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, I want you to think about that statement. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is saying, your language reflects your heart. Some people, they take God's name in vain, and that's happening routinely today. Others use all kinds of profanity and just dirty language, telling uh, off-color jokes, uh, just just uh, in the gutter with their with their uh, language. Well, where is that, that ungodly speech coming from? It's coming from an ungodly heart. I remember telling a young man, dirty mouth means a dirty heart, and that's the truth. I wasn't saying that because I hated the person. I loved that person very much. But it's, it's, it's the reality. So, and Jesus says this in verse 35, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. So he is saying, clearly, your speech reflects your heart. Check your speech. First of all, appeal to logic. Check your logic. Think about this. If my miracles are backing up my claims, then what should that tell you? But also look in your own life. Check your own speech. What, what kind of things are coming out of your mouth? Uh, and he has one more thing to say about your speech, and that is your speech will be judged by God. This is something that you and I are going to give an account for when we stand before God one day. Here's how he put it, verse 36 and 37. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I just can't imagine that. Standing before God. Okay, why did you say that? Well, I was just, uh, you know, I was mad. Look, the excuses aren't going to work when we stand before God. Was that the right thing to say? Was it right for you to talk about that person behind his or her back? Was it right for you to say that kind of language and and uh, uh and 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 get people to laugh at that off court was that the right thing to do we're going to stand before god and give an account of everything we've said that's exactly what jesus is saying here so so all right am i am i on the path to heaven or not because we do know that many people are who think they are on that path or not well are you reasoning through things about christ and understanding who he is what about your speech? What's coming out of your mouth? A third thing Jesus is dealing with is the issue of your faith. See, the people of Jesus' day had seen miracle after miracle done by the Savior. And yet they they felt like they needed to see more. It was not that it was a lack of evidence. It was a lack of faith and a lack of submission to Christ. Listen to what happens right after this. Verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, what they mean by a sign is they're saying we want to see a miracle. But that's just what Jesus had done. He had just healed a man who had a demon who made him blind and unable to speak. He had just done that. And so, yet they turn around after blaspheming him behind his back, trying not to be heard probably by him saying, oh, he's working these miracles through, through Satan's power. Now they're saying, well, we want to see a sign to demonstrate who you really are. The request for more proof. Now, Jesus is not fooled by this, and so he addresses the, what's really going on. Verse 39, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, why does he use the term evil and adulterous generation? I mean, evil makes sense. It's an evil generation, they're sinful. But why use the term adulterous? Well, this is something that is throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament right through the New Testament. And that is God often compares the disloyalty of people toward him as adultery. You see, the Lord wanted to enter into a relationship with all of us, a personal relationship. In the Old Testament, with the nation of Israel, it was pictured as, uh, as uh, God marrying the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, the picture is the, the church, those who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, they're part of what's called the bride of Christ. So the images are very similar. Um, a, a marriage in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel in the New Testament, the Bride of Christ. And again, unfaithfulness to God in that type of relationship, or unfaithfulness to Christ in that kind of relationship, is considered adulterous. And why I think God uses that picture is because he wants us to see how damaging, how evil it is to have other, to have loves that we place ahead of God. And by the way, there were many things that caused these people to have uh, a love uh, for uh, really to refuse to submit to Christ, and they they would love their prestige, they loved their power, they loved uh, their um, uh, the, what they would receive from their uh, from their uh, status in society. They loved the approval of their fellow uh, uh, Pharisees or Sadducees, their fellow religious leaders. And so for those and, and uh, other reasons, they, they didn't want to acknowledge who Jesus was. They didn't want to accept him as, as the Messiah, as the Savior. And so they wanted to come up with any excuse that they could to deny it. And so what Jesus is pointing out is, is people like you in this generation, people who are disloyal to me, who are evil, uh, your real problem is with God. You're sinful and you're disloyal to God. You're an evil and adulterous generation. And he went on to say that there is, there's no sign going to be given to you. Those of you who are determined to reject me, now they may see a miracle that Jesus was doing for the benefit of somebody else, but Jesus was not going to go out of his way to show them anything other than one particular sign. Listen to, let, let's go back and see what he said here. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What does he mean by that? Verse 40 For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, many of you might be familiar with the story of Jonah, where God called one of his prophets, a Jewish prophet by the name of Jonah, to go and to preach to a wicked city of the Assyrian, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, the city of Nineveh, and Assyria was known for their cruelty. Uh, after they conquered a people, uh, they were they were a wicked and an awful uh, empire that existed uh, back several hundred years before Christ. Uh, I think their in their heyday was probably in the 700s BC, right in that neck of the woods. So, the prophet Jonah was called by God to go and preach to this city. And Jonah, if you recall, did not want to go. And it was not because he was afraid to go. He feared that the people would listen to his message, repent, and that God would spare them. He wanted this nation destroyed. He, I believe, understood that they were a very real threat to his own people, the uh, northern kingdom of the nation of Israel. And so he wanted God to wipe them out. And God said, I want you to go and preach to them. And Jonah went just the opposite direction. Now, if you recall, the Lord sent a storm. Uh, uh, Jonah ends up being swallowed by some kind of a large fish, a whale or, or some creature like that, eventually spit up on land again when Jonah repents. And Jonah, this time, goes to Nineveh. Against his desire, he goes there and he preaches a very simple message, 40 days, and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Now, I personally think that the message of Jonah's escape from the whale, miraculous escape, had reached the city before Jonah got there. And the people took his message seriously. They repented, and God spared the city, showing that God wanted to forgive them all along. And Jonah's worst nightmare, which was the repentance of this city, Jonah's worst nightmare came to pass as God forgave and allowed the people to continue to live. Now, why is Jesus compared to that? Because he said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in, the, in, in, the, in this belly of the great fish. So I'm going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, what's he talking about? After Jesus' death, he was three days and three nights in the grave. And after that, he rose from the dead. That was the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus is predicting here his resurrection from the dead. And by the way, tragically, you know what so many of these people did with that information? If you recall, at Jesus' resurrection day, there were soldiers guarding the tomb. Those who had put Christ to death had asked Pontius Pilate to put a guard at the put put guards, not one guard, but uh, 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 enough guards there to secure the tomb, in order that his body not be stolen and there be a false claim of resurrection. On resurrection morning. There was an earthquake. An angel descended from heaven, rolled back the stone. The angels sat on the stone, and the soldiers guarding the tomb were so terrified they collapsed on the ground, probably fainted for a short period of time. After awakening, they look in the tomb. It's obviously empty, and they went then to the authorities who had, who had uh, argued for their placement there and told them what had happened. Now, if you recall the authorities who put Jesus to death, did they take this sign that Jesus clearly had said was going to happen and did they say, oh, we have crucified the wrong one, we need to repent? No, they did not. They bribed the soldiers and rejected that sign as well. So the reality is that that, that someone who is spiritually blind can reject any and all kinds of evidence. And how sad that reality is. Now, he says then, no sign will be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he goes on to say that those who are determined to reject him are spiritually bankrupt. He uses two examples uh, that, that uh, about what would happen on Judgment Day to these people. He says, then the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus loved these people. He was willing to, he would lay down his life for these people. He went to the cross to, to pay for every one of their sins. Jonah didn't even like the Ninevites, didn't want them forgiven. Jesus is saying the people who repented in Jonah's day are going to say to you one day, how could you reject the Christ? We accepted the words of Jonah. The guy didn't even like us. Here's another example. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south is the queen of Sheba. She came uh, at the uh, news that this wise king was now sitting on the throne of Israel uh, uh, and, and reigning. And so... The Queen of Sheba came to listen and find out if it was really true that the wisdom of Solomon was, was, was in fact so great when she came to Jerusalem. she was just overwhelmed at Solomon's riches, at how well he his servants uh, enjoyed being around him at at uh, just the, the beauty the majesty of the Kingdom of Israel at that time, and she left with the knowledge of the one true God that Solomon was worshiping. And she, uh, I, I will believe we'll, we'll see her in heaven as Jesus is indicating here. And, and what the Queen of Sheba would tell to the people of Jesus' generation is simply this. I've, I came miles and miles to find the wisdom of Solomon. And there is someone greater than Solomon that you rejected. How could you do it? How could you do it? Jesus is saying to these people who are determined to reject him, you're spiritually bankrupt. Check your faith you're you're sinful and disloyal to God you the you you the only further sign that I'm going to give you is the sign of my resurrection and 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 you're behaving worse than than these people uh, uh that you know about in the Old Testament who accepted God and accepted the Lord and then he warned them in verse uh, 43 to 45 you're headed toward even a greater ruin uh, ahead and 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 this is an interesting um uh, uh I don't know if you call it a parable, but it's an interesting illustration that Jesus is using at this point. He says, when an unclean spirit, now what an unclean spirit is, it's a demon. When a demon goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be also with this generation. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He's given an example of a person that was demon possessed. Only he's going, to, he's going to take the example from the demon's perspective. So here this demon is. He's thrown out of an individual that he was inhabiting. And that's the, the when it's, he says he's going through dry places seeking rest, the idea is that the demon is looking for another person to indwell to to inhabit to to uh to uh, uh really ruin and so he's looking around for someone else, and he's not finding anyone else at this point that he can enter um, then he says, "I'll return to my house from which I came, and what he means by that I'm going to go back." to the person I used to inhabit. Now, and and when he comes back, he finds this person, and how the Lord describes him, like a house, empty, swept, and put in order. What does he mean by that? Empty indicates that though he had been freed by the Lord, he did not allow the Lord to come into his life to replace the demonic influence he had formerly been under. And believe it or not, I do believe this happens to some. And that is that Satan's uh, uh, oppression could even be possession, like in this place, is on that person's life. And and through the grace of God, they are delivered from that. Now, if that person, that person still has a choice, he or she does not need to necessarily accept the Lord. That is still a, a, a free choice that they're going to have to make. And if that person determines, nah, I don't want the Lord, I, I can handle this myself. Many times, um, they can be recaptured by the devil and far worse than they ever were before. The, um uh just give you an example that I'm talking about. Let's say here's a person and their life has been taken over by uh, drugs or alcohol, or maybe, let's say both. And this person, ha- their their life is destroyed. It, it, they're destroyed. Uh, their marriage has fallen apart. There, there's no relationship with their children any longer. Uh, the job has been lost. Uh, all kinds of terrible things are happening to this person. The, 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 his, we'll make it a guy. His life is, 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 a, is an absolute a mess. Well, through the grace of God, this person comes across someone who can help him. Maybe we will say it's a Christian. This Christian person uh, gets involved in this man's life helps him get cleaned up, uh, maybe helps him find a job, gets him coming to church, uh, gets him uh, listening to the word of God and, and gets some accountability, and, and this person's life begins to turn around. And the disorder and the destruction that, that he was under uh, begins to fall away from his life. And that's a wonderful thing. But what Jesus is saying is if that person doesn't turn around and give his heart to the Lord, and let Jesus come in, then he's leaving himself open to be captured again. Now, this is described, actually, in 2 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read uh, verse 20 to 22. 2 Peter chapter 2, and listen, if you would, to verse 20 to 22. As For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. So they've escaped. God has, has, has cut those ties that were destroying them. But they are again entangled and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed, to her wallowing in the mire. Now, what he's saying is, uh, we'll use the sow for the example. It's a little bit uh, less unseemly. But the idea is that you can clean the pig up. But if the nature of the pig is not changed, the pig's going back to the mud hole. And so a person can clean up they can they can uh with the lord's help and christian people's involvement they they can make a turnaround they can they can get the drugs or the alcohol out of this guy's life he can start down the right road, but if he does not take the Lord into his life he is he is vulnerable he, and how the the Lord describes it is this man. Is like he's this house. This this the, the demon wants to reenter, which is the man's uh, person, empty, without the Lord, swept, which means he's cleaned up and put in order. Now, and Jesus is not just applying this to one person; he's applying this to the generation in which he's living. And so, what he's not saying that that every person has rejected him, but here's what he is saying. He's made a huge difference in society can you imagine we can't even imagine the difference that Jesus made? People who were cheating and 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 genuinely converted like Zacchaeus, now living a godly life, giving their their riches to to people who needed, giving back what they had stolen people who uh, were uh, prostitutes now are 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 completely changed even possessed people who are dangerous and and um, um, just uh, Their lives were destroyed, like Mary Magdalene. Now, is, is are, are walking in obedience with a clear mind and, and are completely changed. There's been many wonderful things to happen to this generation that Jesus was living in, good and wonderful things, but what would happen if they did not accept him, if they did not put their faith in him, if this generation said no to him, which is what they were in the process of doing. Satan was going to come in, and make them far worse than if they had never seen the Lord it was it was really going to get bad, and one of the worst things that would come, and why you take seven demons more more ungodly than himself, can I say that I believe it is that the most ungodly people are the self-righteous ones, the ones who think that because they have all of these good deeds that they've done, and how many times they go to church, the ones who think that because they have um, uh, maybe a degree in theology or they've gone through a private education uh, of a religious education or they, they, they think that they're smarter, that they're wiser, that they're better than everyone else. And that is an affront to God. When someone truly comes to a relationship with Christ, it ought to drive us to humility, to realize that by the grace of God, I've been delivered, not because I'm smarter or better than anyone else. And Jesus warned that this generation was going to experience that, because they were not. They they would take the cleanup, they would take the blessings that Jesus brought them, but they didn't want Him. Check your faith. Jesus is going to try one other thing with 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 this crowd to get help them to understand their need for Him, and that is this idea of a personal relationship. So he's dealt with the logical argument he's asked them to check their speech he's asked them to really look at what their faith is it's not that they needed more evidence they needed to believe what they'd seen now he's he's pointing out that a relationship with him and with god is based not upon who your parents are or what race you are or what what church you go to or in, in those days the synagogue it's based upon your own obedience and and faith in the Lord. And here's how it plays out. Verse 46. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Now, Jesus, we know from another gospel why they were there. Christ was so overwhelmed with people right now coming to him and listening to him that the Bible tells us they didn't have the leisure to eat. People just coming up all over the place with all kinds of needs and and his, his brethren, including, and they talked to his mom about this, they were worried that Jesus was going to have a breakdown, like he was going to go out of his mind, or maybe he already had. Now, his brothers, at this point in Christ's ministry, in all probability, don't believe he's the Messiah. That would come later. So they're actually going like an intervention, like what we call an intervention today, where they would go and, and grab him and try to take him off and, and give him some rest and talk sense into him. That's really why they were there. But anyway, so they're outside this meeting and, and so it's, it's noise now inside that they, his brother and his brethren have come to see him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Is there a special standing because you're a blood relation to Jesus Christ? Who are my mother, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and sister and brother. I want you to think about that. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven, he's the one who's my brother. He's the one who's my sister. Or she's the one who's my sister. She's the one who is my mother. He's saying, blood ties aren't the way to heaven. It's not who your parents are. It's not who your grandparents were. It's, it's a relationship with me. It's obeying me. It's following me. Do you have a personal relationship with God? You know, it comes by not your physical relationships, but by simple repentance and faith. And that repentance of sin involves a turning from your sin to God because you truly believe that Jesus is the Savior and that he really died for you. And you really do want to turn from your sin to him. In 1952, newspapers carried the story of a guy by the name of Al Johnson. He was from Kansas. He came to faith in Christ. And what, but what made his story remarkable was not his conversion, but the fact that as a result of his newfound faith in Christ, he confessed to a bank robbery he had participated in when he was 19 years old. Now, because the statute of limitations on the case had run out, Johnson could not be prosecuted for the offense. And yet he still believed, because he had now a relationship with Christ, that that the Lord would want him to not only confess to this crime, but to voluntarily pay back his share of the stolen money, which he did. Why does he do that? Because Jesus changed his life. He had a relationship. He didn't just have a religion. He had a relationship. That's what we're talking about. And that relationship comes by faith. It comes by understanding who Jesus is. That he really is the Savior. That he really did die for me because my sins are dragging me into hell. And by, by calling out to the Lord in faith and, and repenting of my sin. Lord, I don't want to run my life anymore. I want you to be Lord and Master of my life. Inviting him to come in. It's interesting. It's interesting. Had a, came across a, um, an illustration by Joseph Stoll. Many of you may know him. He was a pastor out in Moody Church, I believe, for a number of years. But he tells this story and had an interesting conclusion on it. He said, we were on our annual Christmas trek to Chicago. And, of course, he pastored out there. Each year, we brought our family to spend time with gran- grandpa and grandma and visit the museums. This year, we decided to finish our Christmas shopping at, su- at suburban Woodfield Mall In the midst of all the fun and excitement, one of us noticed that little three-and-a-half-year-old Matthew was gone. Terror immediately struck our hearts. We had heard the horror stories. Little children kidnapped in malls, rushed to a restroom, donned in different clothes and altered hairstyle, then swiftly smuggled out, never to be seen again. We split up, each taking an assigned location. Mine was the parking lot. I'll never forget that night, kicking through the newly fallen snow, calling out his name at the top of my lungs. I felt like an abject fool, that my concern for his safety outweighed all other feelings. Unsuccessful, I trudged back to our meeting point. My wife Marty had not found him, nor had my mother. And then my dad appeared, holding little Matthew by the hand. Our hearts leapt for joy. Interestingly enough, Matthew was untraumatized. He hadn't been crying. To him, there had been no problem. I asked my father where he had found him. The candy counter, he replied. You should have seen him. His eyes came just about as high as the candy. He held his little hands behind his back, moved his head back and forth, surveying all the luscious options. Now, here is where Stowell makes a very interesting application. He says this, Matthew didn't look lost. He didn't know he was lost. He was oblivious to the phenomenal danger he was in. This is a candy counter culture where people who don't look lost and don't know they're lost live for consumption, living for that candy, that next thing they want in life. Oh, how true that is, even in Jesus' day. The people were living for self. They didn't want the Lord. They were living for the approval of others, for money, for whatever it was that was the next thing jangling in front of them. And so, hey, they may come to watch Jesus do something, but it wasn't to repent. It wasn't to turn from their sins in their lifestyle. They didn't want that. They wanted whatever Jesus could do for them without any kind of commitment to Him. Sadly, many people listening to Jesus did not believe Him. And you know that means they're in hell today. Some of them had even committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, whispering to others, Oh, Jesus is just doing this through the power of Satan. Your relationship to God is not built on your family tree, but on obedience and faith, on trusting the Lord as your personal Savior, Repenting of your sin, putting your faith in him as sal- uh, for your salvation. Uh, may I encourage you to to look at your life today. Have you truly accepted Christ? or Are you trusting something else to take you to heaven? He would save you if you will repent and believe. May God bless you.
0: Are you like three-and-a-half-year-old Matthew in the candy store? Are you so focused on what you want to enjoy that you have no concern for the vulnerable position that you are in concerning your eternal soul? One can sympathize with the three-and-a-half-year-old for not taking time to think of the danger of being separated from his parents, but it is inexcusable for you and I who are older and wiser to continue to focus on the pleasures of earthly life while ignoring God and our accountability to Him. The results of walking away from our Heavenly Father are often tragic in this life. Broken relationships, wasted talents, and a life devoid of true meaning are just a few of the sad realities of an earthly life lived away from God, yet the eternal consequences are even greater. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In this verse, our Lord clearly says that the person who is walking in darkness is spiritually blind. He declares that he is the light of the world. This means that he has come to give sight to the spiritually blind and give them eternal life. Thus, Christ is saying that if you are willing to come to him, you will find eternal life and his spiritual sight to see what is profoundly important in your life. Would you like that? Christ wants these blessings for you. If you have a spiritual need and would like to speak to someone who can help you, you can email us at help at Calkins Baptist Church. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at com. Pastor Jones began this study of the messages of Christ in our church about two years ago, so if you'd like to see their original video sermons of this ongoing series, you can find them on our Facebook page at Calkins Baptist Church. Under the video tab, there's a separate playlist for the Messages of Christ series. If any of you would like to share this radio message with a friend, you can find a link to our podcast on our Facebook page. Just look for a radio bold icon on our feed. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening.